kids and adults alike, how many of you like roller coasters? Let me see your hands if you like roller coasters. All right. How about the really, really big, scary roller coasters? Okay. All right. The rest of you will take a pass, I guess, on, on roller coasters. Adopting is a little bit like roller coasters. And what I would say to a couple that's considering adoption, I would say this. You don't really even have to like roller coasters, but you do have to get in and commit to strapping into the ride. And when you feel like you're going to vomit, try not to do so on your loved one. Uh, turn the other way. That's adoption. And, and it's, it's just part of the deal. Um, we put together a little video uh, of our trip to Ethiopia just kind of for some friends and family. And what I wanted to do is show you the first couple of minutes of it, because it will show you a little bit of what it's like to travel to a third world country and, and do some things. We had a plan going in. We had planned to travel. It's a very long, exhausting trip to, to just get to Ethiopia. We had planned to settle in, find our place, and then we were told we, we could schedule a meeting with our person on the ground in, in the capital city of Ethiopia once we got there. And once we scheduled that appointment, he would line up in a day or two the opportunity for us to go and meet our prospective kids. And in our life, maybe like in your life, plans and real life don't communicate real well all the time. And so a couple minutes here just to see a little bit of of what our journey was like. I wanted to show you that to to draw you into our world a little bit. And uh, sometimes pictures are worth a thousand words. You really do go a little bit insane throughout parts of it. And each person will express it a little bit differently. But here's my question. Why, Why did we save... And why did we plan and why did we prepare? You saw a picture early on of Becky furiously working on the computer. I don't know if you've ever bought a new car. If you've ever had a wreck and had to get a new car, isn't it hard just to do the research to figure that stuff out? Like in, in the course of your everyday life, it feels like a part-time job that some, suddenly someone put on you. That's a little bit of, a, of adoption too. It's just it's a lot of work and research and energy and, and tax that kind of goes into all of that. So why did we save? Why did we prepare? Why did many from our community sacrifice so that we could go on this adventure? Was it to save these kids? Was it to rescue them? The truth is, in part, yes. If you see an orphanage and you get your brain thinking about what it's like to grow up in an orphanage, I've seen, uh, I've seen several around the world. They are not happy places. You want to get your children away from there. But it's so much more than just to rescue or to save. It's to adopt them. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are drowning or in a burning building. You're in a place where you are in dire need of help. Someone comes to your rescue. A hero comes and saves the day and gets you out of that situation. He saved your life but I don't know that it would really impact every day of your life. My hunch is that you'd probably think about that hero on the anniversary of that event every year for the rest of your life and, and maybe um, a few other days, but not every day. You would tend to move on and that hero would tend to move on. But what you just saw in a video was the moment that for four people at the very least, our lives changed every single day from that moment on. Adoption does something different than rescue. Adoption makes it so that every single day for the rest of my life, I will think about those two kids. 
And probably on some level, for the rest of their life, every day, they will think about mom and dad. I bring this up not to tell you the Carlson story, but to tell you the Christian story. This is the Christian story. Why did God send Jesus? To save us, right? I mean, don't we say that all the time? God came to rescue us. God came to save us. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. But so much more. It was God's delight to adopt us. Look at Galatians uh, chapter 4. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came for rescue and salvation, and for that we would be eternally grateful. We would write songs and think about him. We would faithfully remember the anniversary of that event, and we'd probably faithfully remember our hero's birthday. You know what we call that? Easter and Christmas. So why are we here worshiping in January? Why is it that for many in this room, you will think about your rescuer, your hero, every single day for the rest of your life? Why? Because he adopted us. Do you see the picture? It's so much bigger than Jesus saves. Jesus saves, yes, but move on. Jesus adopts. God brings us into his family. Last week, I told you up front I wanted to change your view of the word adopted. I didn't want it to carry shame. I didn't want it to carry something of a stigma of somehow being second class. I wanted you instead to think about what it's really about. Adopted means wanted. Adopted means chosen. Part of our kid's story in Ethiopia is rejection. And another part of the story of our kids from Ethiopia is that they were chosen. And a lot of effort went into going to them and receiving them in. Setting orphan care in the context of the gospel fuels it long past feeling bad for these poor kids. Feeling bad for kids kind of motivates us to a point. But orphan care, the way God wants us to pursue orphan care, needs something far greater. And I believe putting it in the context of understanding our orphaned status pre-Jesus fuels our passion and fuels our imagination and provides us with ongoing energy long past feeling bad for those poor kids. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting in the chair in front of you. You're welcome to keep that as a gift from us. If you ever get stuck, in the very front of the Bible is an alphabetical list of the books of the Bible. And you go to Ephesians, which starts with E. You find that, and you go to chapter 5. If last week was transforming the word adopted to wanted, this week the focus is this, that every baby is wanted. I think most people in this room, no matter what your persuasion on the Christian faith is, would say, are babies wanted? You would say yes to that. You would say life is precious. And there's something about babies in the hearts of even the most hardened adult that says, yeah, we ought to do something for that poor crying child. Babies are wanted. This week I want to just highlight and shine some spotlight on this idea. What if there were no more unwanted babies? And our lips didn't just say that, but our our actions told that story very, very loud and clear. Here's a question that has been, it's been on the forefront of my mind since I started preparing for this a couple months ago, actually, and it's this. 
I'm going to put this on the screen later, so if you don't get the question all, you can get it later. But here it is. What if churches became the place where unwanted babies became beloved sons and daughters? What if the church was the place? It was just known. Oh, that's the place where unwanted babies become beloved sons and daughters. What if that became the reputation of the church? What if people saw this and knew it because it was so incredibly pervasive? It was the norm. You know what I think? I think it would give pause to every woman going to an abortion clinic to say this. I think there is some place that would take this child because there are no unwanted babies and that place proves it. I think it would put orphanage workers out of business. Because there might be very quickly temporary holding places, but no place in the world would require orphanage workers and a place set up where people are kept long term. It would be very much like a gym after a disaster. People stay, stay in cots, there's a few blankets, there's some quick foods, but they're gone. They don't stay there very long at all. I think if churches became the place where people understood that's where unwanted babies go in and they come out to love sons and daughters... I think the world would wonder what on earth the power was emanating from that place. And I think the world would be drawn to churches to find out. I think they'd be drawn to churches predisposed to praise the power and the story going on. Does this sound outlandish? Does that sound like I'm off base of what, of what would happen if churches became known as that? Today I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the problem a little bit more. I want to talk about what's at stake. And I want to begin to dabble in some of our response. We have two more weeks to go after this where we're going to get to talk about a lot more. Let's talk about the problem for a moment. I said last week that there was an orphan crisis. And I wasn't trying to be alarmist or sensationalize things just for this month. I'm simply trying to put forth the truth. It's actually a gross understatement to say that there's an orphan problem. It's a bit like saying, oh, it's only a flesh wound. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite how mistaken and grossly understated it is. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, well, if it's such a giant problem, how come I don't know much about it? Here's here's what I think. I think it's because it's really hard. I think it's because it's really, really common. And I think it's because it's actually being covered up. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. If you're there with me, follow along. It says this, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Make visible the evil and darkness in the world. I want to stir today awake, maybe sleepy Christians who've forgotten, who've let it slip away. I want to create a sense of urgency. I want to teach you what God's will is, and I want to show you what's just in plain sight. It's really there for us at all times every day, 
but sometimes we can overlook what we see often. There's a book that I would highly recommend reading. It's called The Hole in Our Gospel, and it's by a guy named Richard Stearns, and we've been partnering with World Vision now as a church for a long time. And Rich Stearns went from selling high-end cutlery and dishes kind of a thing, being a CEO of that, to being the CEO of World Vision, which, which works with destitute kids all around the world. And really, World Vision is in what I would call orphan prevention. Um, it's, it's going further upstream and putting resources in so it prevents people from ever getting to a place where they would give their kids up to be adopted. It's a pretty interesting story, and it's a pretty challenging read. But he uses an illustration there talking about this very thing of, of why we're kind of blind to the need. And instead of trying to recreate it, I just want to read directly from his book. Um, and it says this. He says, imagine for a moment if you woke up this morning to the following headline. 100 jetliners crash, killing 26,500 people. Think of the pandemonium that this would create across the world as heads of state Parliaments and Congresses convened to grapple with the nature and causes of this tragedy. Think about the avalanche of media coverage that would ignite around the globe as reporters shared the shocking news and tried to communicate its implications for the world. Air travel would no doubt grind to a halt as governments shut down the airlines and panicked air travelers canceled their trips. The National Transportation Board and perhaps the FBI, CIA, and local law enforcement agencies and their international equivalents would mobilize investigations. They dedicate whatever manpower was required to understand what happened and to prevent it from ever happening again. Now imagine that the very next day, 100 more planes crashed. And then the next day, 100 more planes crashed and the next, and the next. It's unimaginable that something this terrible could ever happen, but it does. And here's the kicker. It is. It happened today. And it happened yesterday. It will happen again tomorrow, but there was no media coverage. No heads of state, parliaments, or Congress stopped what they were doing to address this crisis. And no investigations have been launched. Yet more than 26,500 children died yesterday of preventable causes related to their poverty. And while we're worshiping here today, it's happening today. And tomorrow, and the day after that. I want you to think of 2014 for a moment. In 2014... Almost 10 million children will have been deceased because of causes related to their poverty. I promised you last week that this was going to be a difficult month for us. I felt sorry for myself this week, probably around Wednesday or Thursday, thinking, wow, this has been such a heavy week. I've had to soak in just the reality of the crisis of the world. And about five seconds later, the not-so-gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit that resides in me through the power of Christ smacked me upside the head. 
because I thought, wow, I'm feeling sorry for myself for having a knot in my stomach, for feeling the emotional weight of this. People are living through this every single day. That's their reality. And I felt a twinge of sorrow for myself. Some of you might feel a twinge of anger at me right now. Why are you bringing us down, Dave? I just wanted to come and kind of get built up. My prayer for this morning is that we'd have an open mind. My prayer for this morning is that we wouldn't just respond critically, we wouldn't respond defensively, but that we would just open ourselves up and say, God, would you just tell me what, what I need to hear this morning? Happening daily, yet hardly a whisper. It's hard, it's common, and it's being covered up. I want to shock you with a saying found in newsrooms across the country. This is from a book called Compassion Fatigue, written by a journalist. In it, she writes this. This phrase is heard around newsrooms. In the news business, one dead fireman in Brooklyn is worth five English bobbies who are worth 50 Arabs who are worth 500 Africans. That is a terrible statement. That is a shocking statement. But I thought, you know, I think it's true. In terms of our actions, so you know what this got me to doing? This got me to, to go into my computer. I was sitting at my computer, actually, so I didn't go anywhere. I switched windows. And I decided to take a screenshot. I said, let me just see right now if this is true. Here's the equation again. One firefighter is the equivalent of five English bobbies, which is the equivalent of 50 Arabs, which is the equivalent of 100 Africans. Why is it that our compassion for others is directly correlated to whether people are close to us? And I'm not talking about close just geographically, but socially, economically, culturally, ethnically. We care more for people who are like us. So here's the headlines at 5.15 on Thursday of this week. I went to Google News because I have a friend named Phil and I thought I'd support him. (laughs) So if you zoom in, the top story is all about some killings in France. And the pictures that you see a third of the way down the screen is every major news outlet carrying that story. Let me ask you a question. How many were killed in France? Okay, many of us know that because that was put in front of our face, right? It was spotlighted of all the events going on in the world. Remember last week I said what a giant responsibility it is for pastors and leaders of the church to put the spotlight somewhere? It's a giant responsibility for those in the news and the media and governments to do the same thing. I happen to know there were 12 people killed because it was covered a lot by Thursday at 5.15. Now, if you scroll down a little ways. Here's page two. The very top story in page two is the world section. It's written in much smaller font, and I had to scroll down off of the first page for it. And if you click on the link about that, it's going to give you this headline, that the Boko Haram terrorists killed dozens, plural, in the past two days. More than that, as you read the story, 10,000 people last year were killed in Nigeria. Five English bobbies, 50 Arabs, 
100 Africans. Do you see the, the math formula? 12 French people, 10,000 Nigerians. How many of you knew that that many were killed? A handful. Chances are you went and looked for it. Chances are that wasn't put out in front of you. This is not unique to this week. Here's my hunch. It's not newsworthy because they're not seen as our kids. Those struggling far away hits us far less than those who are near us. But here's the question I pose to us, church. Is this how Jesus wants it? We're disciples of Jesus Christ. Is this how he wants it? At heart, we are all religious and unreligious alike. Those sitting in churches this morning, those the farthest away from churches this morning, we are all at heart like the Pharisee and the priest who looked the other way in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the Good Samaritan story? There's a guy beat up in a ditch on the side of the road. He's a victim. He's needy. Jesus says to the person asking that question that prompted that story, I should say, asking what the greatest commandment was, he said, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, love God, and the second is like it. Remember, he paired those together. So this is nothing new. Generosity and joyful open-handedness is to characterize God's people. Now, there are more than 2,000 verses depicting this in the scriptures. Um, I'm not going to give you all 2,000 this morning, okay? I've, I've cherry-picked just a handful, but this is everywhere. Here's Proverbs 29.7. The righteous care about the justice of the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Deuteronomy 15. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to him whatever he needs. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Freely you have received, freely give. Proverbs 19:17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he does. Jesus picks up on this theme going as far as to say that when you've helped the poor, catch this, you've helped him. Remember that? Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In his inaugural sermon in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in his hometown. He goes to the scroll, the place of Isaiah, and he opens it up and he starts to read. This is the start of his public ministry. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And remember what he says next? Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was the response? Adam Moore, that's one of ours. No, they took him out to kill him. They went out to kill Jesus at that point. Look it up, Luke chapter 4. Jesus right away sets the tone. Whoever so believes may come, but the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed get special 
mention why. Could it be that the poor are often highlighted precisely because we tend to keep them out of sight? Those in power tend to keep them at bay, if at all possible. Now, to those who pretend not to notice, listen to this stern warning in Proverbs. If a man shuts his ears to the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. And James says this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When Jesus told the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember what the Pharisee asked in response? Looking to justify him, he asked what? Who's my neighbor? Come on. How far do we take this, Jesus? That's what he was asking. There's a lot of needs in the world. Am I supposed to help every needy victim in the side of the road? That's when Jesus went to tell probably his most famous story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In essence, his answer was this. The one who acts neighborly to the needy, that's the neighbor. You want to know who your neighbor is? It's not a demographic that you can somehow define. It's who you go and be neighborly to. Now, instant communication and swift transformation make it a little bit awkward. For those of us who like to keep our compassion and our love in kind of neat little boxes that we can control and manage. We just had access, like much of the world doesn't have, to some stats and happenings and goings on around the world, pretty much in real time, at any time. And frankly, as the video just showed, 48 hours is a long time when you're going through it. In the grand scheme of things, not that long to get from here to almost the exact opposite end of the planet. Different needs motivate people differently. I think that's the beauty of God's family. I think it's the beauty of God's design. Some people are most motivated right here by what they see. People in this valley, people in this city, people in this state, this country. You know what I would say to that? Great. Go be a neighbor. Great. Start here. Go be a neighbor. Some people don't start here. They end here. They give their whole life to a specific place. Great. Go be a neighbor. Some people see that at least here, the basic needs of food and clothing and and not being vulnerable uh, to just kind of the, the wolves of evil people are being met here. And when they see that that's not happening elsewhere, they're so horrified that they are moved by that. You know what I'd say to that? Great. Go be a neighbor. So whether here or around the world, go be a neighbor. There was a couple looking to adopt. As they prayed over and poured over information, uh, praying about and thinking about which country to adopt from, they came across a nation that was so impoverished and its economy in shambles and its crooked leaders crushing vulnerable citizens. And they began to understand that the most vulnerable in that land were the children. No voice, no vote, no power to change anything, and no one caring at all. They discovered that the mortality rate in the orphanages of this country was 50%. A child comes in, flip a coin. That's it. Here's what horrified them even more. They began to talk to people on the ground there, and they said, oh, those numbers are grossly downplayed to put on a good face. 
50% mortality rate was a good face for this country. That knowledge moved them to urgent action. Looking back at Ephesians, it says this, make the best use of your time. Of all the fears and worries you might have, what kind of parent could I possibly be? I've got my own issues. You know what you begin to think about? You begin to think, you know what? Whatever issues I have, it's better than them dying alone in an orphanage. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish. Understand what the, na- what, what the will of the Lord is. So that's the problem. What's at stake? Let me give it to you really short. What's at stake? I believe what's at stake is the name of God. The glory of God is at stake. At NBC, we are incredibly active in helping the poor. It's always been this way. We've, we've, we've been this way as a church for the last eight years. We believe that mere handouts, while it feels good uh, in the short term to the person receiving it and to the person giving it, we believe that mere handouts really begins to sour over time pretty quickly because it creates a lot of dependence and um, feelings of inferiority to those who are on the receiving end, and it begins to re- uh, create a lot of resentment, and it's unsustainable for those who are, who are on the giving end. So we've kind of leaned in and pressed in to say, how can we do this better? So we work hard to see people and not just needs. Here's some of the questions that, that come up and some of the difficult conversations that have gone around uh, this building in some various rooms that I remember very, very clearly, and some in living rooms and in different places around this city. Asking a person in need, what part did you play in this crisis? What part do you play in your recovery? And then asking this simple question, is there any way I can help you? You see how that frames it a little bit differently? They're, they're the participant. They're the ones that we're coming along to assist. Rich Henderson has come up with this great illustration for Love, Inc., an organization that's focused on this. He talks about the idea, if you go to help someone and they need help moving a couch, they're a single person moving it up a flight of stairs. You wouldn't come with two people, have that person sit on the couch and carry them around. That's awkward and weird, right? Probably in America, you'd send two people, you'd go move the couch for it while they stand around and watch and point, say, here. You, you, know, what, you know what we're trying to accomplish? We're trying to accomplish this picture. You get that into the couch, I'll get this into the couch. Let's go. You see how that works? We see that in Scripture, and we're trying to, to model that. Here's my question. What about those who have no part in their crisis? What about those who have no ability to recover? What about those who couldn't possibly lift their end of the couch because they can't even spell the word couch? The babies of the world, the children. What about them? Perhaps this is why orphans get so much prominent attention in the Scriptures. Help the vulnerable and the needy. By the way, almost always you see orphans right up there. Widows are places close behind. And those who are foreigners, those who are sojourners, those who are in your land who are vulnerable get a a mention as well. It's not that others aren't in need or aren't vulnerable. It's just some 